You're listening to Vernacular Podcast. Hello and welcome to Vernacular Podcast. I'm Zach. And I'm Sally. And you're listening to episode 11, where we're talking to Ishan and Julia about a bunch of different things to include the Greek crisis, guinea pigs, vegetarianism, and triathlons. Yes. But before we do that, we have a couple things to talk to you about. One, we want to ask for your feedback. We, um, if you've been listening to the podcast and you're enjoying it, then check us out on iTunes and you can give us a rating um, or you can leave us a review. A or number both. of you have already done this and we're very grateful to your to you for your feedback. Yes, thank if, you. If you have not given us a rating, please consider doing so. It helps us uh, promote awareness about our podcast and helps us drive listenership and also provides us feedback. So if we're if you think we're doing a one-star job, you can let us know. <laughs> we will take note. <laughs> and then secondly, we have to give you our hashtag tip of the week. And this week's tip of the week relates to Target. We really like shopping at Target. And recently they came out with a new app called Cartwheel. And basically what you do is once you're inside the app, um, you can look at all of their different offers, all of their different coupons that are available, and then you can save them for later when you actually go to Target and purchase the items. And this really worked well for us the other day because Sally found a coupon on this app that gave 30% off of all bicycles at Target. Yeah, and we were already planning on buying bikes, so this was a big deal for us. <laughs> we were excited. And in fact, when you listen to the podcast, I think you'll hear a point where Sally tells Ishan Julia that we're about to get bikes, and yes. that was recorded before we did get bikes, but we ended up getting bikes and we used the Target Cartwheel app to do so. And we got 30% off, which saved us about a hundred dollars on yeah. both of our bikes. It was pretty awesome. Not all of the offers are that great. I mean, on a, to be honest, some of them are just like 5% off of some of their brand food, but, uh, some of them are really great, like this bike one. So we recommend now, Cartwheel. We definitely do. But one word to the wise with that recommendation, Cartwheel likes to tell your friends, your social media friends about your purchases. If you log in via Facebook. So I made the mistake of logging in via Facebook. And when I logged in, it told me about all my friends who had saved all this money. So I saw <laughs> your friend so-and-so saved 5% on Archer Farms maple syrup. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, it likes to share your shopping list with your friends. So if you're the kind of person who doesn't like that information being out there. Yeah. <laughs> or just, don't really care what your friends are buying on Target. <laughs> just be aware of that. Yeah. So yeah, download Cartwheel. If you like shopping at Target, you can save some money and hopefully get some great deals. The last thing that we want to mention is that this is our final full episode of season one of Vernacular Podcast. Next week, we'll be releasing a mini episode, much like the mini episode that we kicked things off with in episode zero zero earlier this year. Uh, but in the, that mini episode and at the very end of this episode, Sally and I will talk a bit more about the programming changes that are up for season two. We're going to be doing things a little bit differently and we're pretty excited about those changes. So, and that'll start after Labor Day. Right. So in September, we'll be releasing episode one of season two. So uh, stick around if you want to hear us talk about those changes and we'll talk a lot more about those next week in our mini episode. All right. Next up, Ishan and Julia. All right, welcome back to Vernacular. We're here with Ishan and Julia, who are joining us from their home in Chicago. Ishan, Julia, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks. Uh, why don't you guys uh, introduce yourselves to our listeners in 30 seconds or so. Tell them who you are. Okay, so I'm Julia, and I'm a med student at the University of Chicago. 
I'm Ishan. I'm a PhD student in economics at the University of Chicago. And we live here in um, the Hyde Park neighborhood of Chicago with our two guinea pigs, uh, Rosie and Zoe. And I'm from Chicago and very glad to be back in my favorite city in the world. And I'm from California and getting used to the weather differences. Oh, yeah. That's a big difference. <laughs> Have you guys lived in the center of a big city before? No, not really. No. Hyde Park is a rather sort of quiet part of Chicago. It's more college towny than big city. So it's not been a huge adjustment. And Chicago is a wonderful city. So we've liked it so far. Yeah, in the second year of the PhD program, I look forward to discovering things outside the library. <laughs> nice. You have to let us know how it we'll is when you get in. out. Yeah. Yeah. So, Ishan, I noticed that you, um, in your pre-interview questionnaire that you submitted to us, you mentioned that you're pretty sure you still have the first hundred digits of pi memorized. Oh uh, yeah, I think so. I don't know <laughs> if it was a hundred, maybe like eighty. Okay, eighty. Can you give it a shot? Let's see. Uh okay. I'll try. <laughs> Three point one four one five nine two six five three five eight nine seven nine three two three eight four six two six four three three eight three two seven nine five zero two eight eight four one nine seven one six one four nine seven one six nine three nine nine three seven five one zero five eight two zero nine. I think I might have messed up some of the last few. No, you uh, you you corrected yourself. You nailed it. Really? Do yeah. you have them in front of you? Yeah. Oh, that's great. Yeah. The one you, you the one you almost tripped on but recovered was uh, uh, 971-693993751. Oh, well, glad I got it. Nailed then. it, though. Nice. <laughs> I'm impressed. I'm impressed, too. Yeah, there was a poster behind my eighth grade math teacher with the first however many digits of pi that was. <laughs> and she was like a really bad teacher. So I just memorized a few numbers a week and then got them all by the end of the year. <laughs> that's awesome. All right, cool. Well, welcome to the show, guys. We're looking forward to talking to you about a lot of things, but we'll start with the Greek currency crisis. Sounds good. That is a favorite topic of mine to talk about. So Greece is basically needing to secure a bailout uh, so it can make payments to its creditors. I think the next uh, payment that it has due. Actually, I know that one payment came due uh, July 20th. That was the second major payment. And I think that was around $3 billion. Or maybe it was like $1.6 billion. But it was in the billions of dollars. It was a big payment that Greece did not meet. Oh, um, I didn't know that. Yeah. And the big question was whether or not Greece was going to get a bailout before that moment. Uh, but before that moment, Greece was actually offered a bailout by the ECB the European Central Bank. And uh, because Greece had elected uh, earlier this year, um, I think it's pronounced Syriza. Do you know oh. if that's correct, Ishan? Uh, I don't actually know how it's pronounced. Okay. I just read about them. <laughs> S-Y-R-I-Z-A. So yeah, I guess I've never heard it said either. But um, this, was, this is a far left party in Greece uh, and was elected in large part to uh, cut back on the austerity measures of the previous administration. So it basically had a domestic mandate to stop these um, these uh, budget cuts and the wage decreases that it, the previous administration had put in place. Is this all correct so far, Ishan? Uh, yeah, it's pretty much on track. I oh. think that the, the bailout's not just from the ECB. It's the IMF and the European Union. So okay. the other countries in the euro are paying into it. Gotcha. And 
we'll get into this maybe a little bit more later, but bailout is a word that everyone uses, but it's not technically accurate because it's just sort of rolling over loans at low interest rates. So it's a bailout in the sense that they couldn't get those loans from private creditors and they need those loans to pay back their old loans, but it's not a bailout in the sense that no one's just dumping money into Greece for free. Hmm. So it's like Greece is refinancing at low subsidized rates, the rates being subsidized by things like the EU and the IMF and the ECB. Yeah, and it's kind of strange because they're basically getting loans from the people they already owe money to to pay back the old loans, but then they have new loans. Right, so basically very generous creditors. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So basically there there was an offer on the table uh, for a first bailout. That the, was early July, late June? Yes, correct. And uh, the Greek Prime Minister, Alexander Tsipras, uh, did not want to take this bailout. But he's, he was kind of in a bind, so basically he punted it to the Greek public who voted in a referendum. They voted in a referendum to uh, reject the deal. The fact of the matter was that the deal had actually already expired. But Tsipras then wrote the uh, European Central Bank and said, we're ready to renegotiate for a new deal with these stipulations, etc. So now there's a new deal offer on the table. And uh, those talks to uh, complete the bailout uh, start tomorrow. We're speaking here on Monday, the 27th of July. So they're starting tomorrow, Tuesday, the 28th. So that's what's going on in Greece right now. And I uh, thought we could figure out why this is happening, what the root of the problem is. And obviously, we're not going to solve this problem on this podcast, but it's just an interesting uh, conversation point. And Ishan, I'll turn it over to you for thoughts first. Yeah, so I think stepping back, way back from the current situation in Greece and all of the details of the negotiations and things, I think that a big sort of red herring here is Greece itself and their terrible debt burden and their very poorly managed finances and poorly managed government for all of these decades. Because... Those things are obviously a problem that's specific to Greece and has gotten them into the situation. But a big reason why it's difficult and some would think nearly impossible, especially the way that policy has been to get out of this problem, is just the fact that we have this common currency in Europe in the first place. So understanding sort of the broader context of that, I think, is the necessary step one to then get into the specific problems to Greece. So way back in the 90s, There's a lot of people in the academic economics community, probably the great majority of people who thought that the euro was a really bad idea in the first place. So there's this old idea in economics from this guy, Robert Mundell. I think it was in the 1960s called the theory of the optimal currency area. There's two main reasons why we care about what a currency area is. The first thing is that all the area under one currency has one monetary policy, so one central bank that controls the interest rate and the money supply, which has a really big impact on the macroeconomy in the short run. And the second is that all of the area under one currency has the same exchange rate, which is another thing that has a big impact on the macroeconomy. And so if you have a lot of countries that are joining one currency area, what you want is that their macroeconomies are moving very closely together so that the central bank can respond similarly to the situation across lots of different countries. So in the U.S., the way the Fed works is if the economy is not doing so well, we're in a recession, they lower interest rates that encourages people to invest and to spend, and it gets the economy moving sort of back on track as a very high-level broad explanation. But it's a problem if some states are in a recession and some states are in a boom. 
because you have one central bank and they have to set policy for everybody. So the way we get around that in places like the U.S., which probably wouldn't be an optimal currency area if there was just monetary policy and just the Fed, is that we have really big – there's two things. We have really big fiscal transfers between states from the states that are doing well to the states that are doing poorly. And we have a lot of lower mo labor mobility. So people are really willing to move from one state to another in the U.S., and that helps smooth out differing economic situations. Whereas in Europe, there's no built-in system where just through paying taxes and spending, money is getting transferred from country to country. So in the U.S., I don't have the exact numbers, but some states pay in something like $2 in federal taxes for every dollar in federal spending that they receive just because they're doing better, their economies are doing better. And that's one thing that helps the Fed get around having to respond to, suppose, a really different economic situation in Nevada versus California versus Mississippi versus New York. So these are things that they lack in Europe. And so when one country, let's call it Greece, is doing poorly, and another country, let's call it Germany, is doing really well, if the European Central Bank responds as they would respond in Greece by reducing interest rates or, since interest rates are now at zero, doing other unconventional policy sorts of things, they might create inflation in economies like Germany that are doing better. So when the euro was originally created, a lot of people were saying, you know, you hear, you hear people talk about ever closer union and, you know, you need fiscal union and banking union if you're going to have a monetary union. And that's something that really hasn't happened. So in the United States, you have all this money pouring from California or Texas or I don't know exactly which states into other states like Mississippi or Nevada or whichever states are having a tougher time in the recession. But in in the United States, no one has to vote. Californians don't vote like, oh, we're going to send money to this other state that's doing poorly every year and give them what we're going to call it a bailout. But in Europe, when money goes from one country to another, their citizens vote on it. And you know, then they draw mean political cartoons of the citizens in the other country. <laughs> and so they don't have these sort of built-in systems that you need for a monetary union to work. And the second big thing is that their exchange rates are fixed. Because there's one euro, so there's one exchange rate between the euro and every other cu currency. Whereas if they were, they all had their own currency, then the way uh, in macroeconomics that we think about trade balances between countries is we think about countries that are more productive. People want more of their stuff, and so they want more of their currency to buy more of their stuff. So demand for their currency rises, and the value of their currency rises, and that's why countries that are more productive tend to see their currencies go up, whereas currencies that are countries that are less productive tend to see their currencies go down. And so if they each had their own currencies, we would see the Deutschmark, say, for Germany, be worth a lot more than the euro is, and the drachma in Greece be worth a lot less. And so Greek products would be a lot cheaper, and German products would be a lot more expensive, and that would help their economies to sort of equilibrate. These sorts of misalignments in exchange rates are a really big part of the problem. Italy, Portugal, Finland, Spain, Slovenia, Denmark, Estonia, all of them have a net negative change in GDP from 2007 to 2015. So there's a lot of countries that are struggling with the problems of the euro. Greece was just in much worse shape to begin with. And so the situation we have in Greece is a lot more extreme. But in the long run, we have a lot of countries that are not getting back to their normal steady growth, low unemployment sort of equilibrium that we want to see because of the problems created by the euro. So it seems like um, circa 2009, uh, after the financial crisis, there was a lot of paranoia about a, uh, a eurozone collapse where 
you know, Ireland would tumble and then Spain would follow and Italy and Greece and essentially the Eurozone would fall apart and, and it would be in shambles. And it seems like that hasn't been too borne out by reality, but it seems like you're identifying a serious structural problem in the Eurozone anyway. So, I mean, how much longer can it last like it is now with places like Greece not being able to benefit from cheap exports because of an exchange rate that's basically controlled by the ECB? These are serious problems. So what's the kind of what's the prognosis here? Yeah, I don't know. Honestly, it seems like the most likely prognosis is they're just going to have a decades-long recession and just never solve this problem and continue in this sort of stasis, stuck-in-the-mud sort of zone. Because it seems like European leaders are, for the most part, totally in denial that all of these problems exist. They don't acknowledge them publicly. They don't seem to acknowledge them privately. They're, they stick strongly to the position that the euro is awesome and it's doing great and the only problem is that countries need to you know fix their regulations interfering the economy and become more productive which is also true but that's not the main issue going on here so i don't it's difficult to make predictions because you know in 2010 i would have thought by 2015 surely someone would have made some move to fix some of these structural issues going on or some catastrophe would have forced them to, but the catastrophes happen and then they sort of paper over them and just kind of keep moving along. So you said that in the 1990s, it seemed like the academic econ community was pretty unanimous in saying that this universal currency was a bad idea. Um, I think unanimous you... might be strong, but I think that was definitely the predominant view. Okay. So what if, I understand, if that was the predominant view, why do you think this happened? I think politics was just a lot more important to them than economics. From my understanding, I think some of the early leaders of the euro didn't even want to talk to economists about it, weren't even interested in their opinions, because this was all about peace in Europe and bringing the countries closer together, which seems, in my opinion, to have backfired pretty badly. Yeah, that's what I was just going to suggest or slash ask, if the euro is really just a political and maybe symbolic gesture and less about economics at all. <laughs> From what you're saying, it just sounds like it's the worst economic decision that they could make. I mean, I think your point about how this is all political is a very important one. From a political science perspective, the uh, precursor to the to what is now the Eurozone is the European Coal and Steel Community, which uh, was born out of World War II and was designed to basically prevent war materials from being um, you know, built by certain countries to be used against other countries in Europe. And that that further evolved and um, eventually came to be what we know what we know today is the eurozone. Uh, but then, you know, on the other side, so that's how it was formed. But then on the other side of the coin, you know, Syriza, the far left um, movement in Greece, is one of many interesting implications for the future of the eurozone, but also of the larger European integration project in general. It's almost good that the most extreme thing that's come out of this is Syriza, considering all the human suffering that's going on in Europe. You can imagine worse political parties taking charge. So we know that you guys don't just live alone in your apartment in Chicago. You live with two furry little creatures, your guinea pigs. And um, well, I actually had a guinea pig when I was growing up, but he or she, I don't actually remember whether it was a he or she, didn't last very long. He didn't live very long. And I don't know if that was our fault. I don't actually remember the whole situation of why he or she died. But tell it's us a little bit of about love, your, yeah, maybe lack of love. Tell us about your love for guinea pigs and why you have two of them. Uh, so I grew up with guinea pigs. Oh, nice. Um, 
I, well, I grew up with a guinea pig. His name was Patch. He was very important to my family Aww. when I was a little kid. And people asked me whether I had any siblings. I would say, yes, I have a little brother named Patch. He's a Aww, guinea pig. That's adorable. <laughs> and I think we think of Zoe and Rosie similarly. We think of them as our baby girls. Aww. I have a friend in my study group who has a one-year-old daughter, and he's always telling stories about her. And I always want to be like, oh, yeah, like – so we and Rosie did this this week, <laughs> and then I realized that that's not really socially acceptable. So then I stopped myself. So um, they perform tricks, or do they learn uh, new skills? Um, they can learn skills and tricks. We don't really teach our guinea pigs tricks and skills, but I would say one of their skills is communicating exactly what they want out of us and demanding it very forcefully with their loud variety of squeaks and squeals <laughs> and noises. They're definitely the bosses around here. <laughs> so, Julia, did you have a love for guinea pigs before you married Ishan, or has this grown on you over time? This has grown on me over time. <laughs> I had never honestly seen a guinea pig before oh, wow. I met Ishan. I didn't know anything about them. And then my sister decided to get a guinea pig in college and try and raise it in her dorm room, which was a poor decision. Um, <laughs> it was uh, logistically difficult. So we ended up taking the guinea pig for the summer, um, and this was Clem. And so that summer that we had Clem was my first experience living with a guinea pig, and it was very lovely. The guinea pigs are very friendly and cuddly and low-maintenance and just generally good pets they're very therapeutic when you're stressed or anything because they have no cares in the world and all they do is putter around and look cute and squeak at you and it's very it's very comforting they're currently dismantling one of their wooden tunnels with their teeth (laughs) yeah they have chew toys because they're sort of like beavers and that their teeth keep growing if they don't chew things so oh wow i didn't know that yeah that's like Esther. Yeah. <laughs> Our daughter. She has lots of chew toys and pretty much anything that she can get her mouth on becomes a chew toy. Yep. I often joke that she's a little gerbil, but maybe she's actually a guinea pig. That's <laughs> the highest of all compliments in my family. <laughs> is she teething? She... Yes. Pretty much oh. constantly. I mean, she goes like in and out of teething, but I think she's she's teething again now. And yeah, she's got... Her certain favorite loves that she will chew on at any given moment. Nice. But this is good to know that guinea pigs are good pets because Zach and I are filing away what pet we could possibly bring into our home at some point. Yeah, I do, however, have a checkered past with this type of thing. As do I. Um, <laughs> so, so that's why we're hesitant. Yeah, I advise you guys, you probably already know this, but I just advise you, um, you know, especially if your family grows as time goes on, to... Uh, have, have one person be responsible for making sure the guinea pigs are always fed. Um, when, uh, when I was growing up, uh, my family had hamsters um, at one point, and we had a, I think we had two or three. And um, we went on vacation once, and we had a pretty big family. You know, I had four siblings and uh, two parents, so seven of us all together. And uh, no one fed the guinea pig, so I mean the hamster. So when we came back, you guys are gonna think I'm a terrible person when I tell this story. My heart but, is already breaking. I'm sorry. When we came back, there was um, one less hamster in the cage, and there were like there was ha- hamster fur all over the cage. Like one of the hamsters was gone, and the other hamsters were very fat. 
and looking very content. That's terrifying. Uh, that's so, so I just want to clarify awful. that hamsters are not remotely similar to guinea pigs. They're right. not closely related at all. They don't like being pets. They don't really like people. Guinea oh. pigs love people. Guinea oh. pigs are nocturnal. Guinea, guinea pigs love being pets. They're not trying to escape because they genuinely actually really enjoy this life. Oh, yeah. this is good to know. This is good to know. They're just like actually very similar to dogs except in tiny little bodies. They yeah. love people. And not as high maintenance, oh. right? Yeah. Not at all as high maintenance. Definitely. I have something I call the guinea pig theory of life, which I think would apply great to raising happy, loving children, which is just that guinea pigs are just, their lives are so simple. All they care about is, you know, their food and their warmth and their safety and like their company. They're extremely social animals and they just love to be played with and snuggled and they purr and coo very happily in your lap. So it just really helps me center my life around what's important, which is like love and family and just the fact that we, you know, all have lives where we're taken care of. And so I feel like just spending time with my guinea pigs every evening just really reminds me of what I really care about. And their lifespans are so short that I really, like, really reminds you to cherish every single moment, not just with them, but also with the rest of your family. Yeah, I love that. I could say the same about Esther minus the short lifespan part. (laughs) (laughs) Not to be morbid, but she reminds me of what's really important. And I think she similarly, all she wants is just to eat, to play, <laughs> and to sleep. Right. <laughs> so did guinea pigs in your life, Ishan, prompt your decision to be vegetarian? Or was that, were you, did you grow up vegetarian? Yeah, so I think that was definitely part of it, uh, is that I sort of felt like a hypocrite talking about how animals are people too, and they're feeling, thinking, emotional, loving beings who are, you know, friends, not food, but then I was eating other animals. Uh, but I think just more broadly, I just can never really justify intellectually to myself why it's okay to eat meat. And I just kept doing it because it was a huge part of my diet and all my favorite foods were meat, but I never really felt comfortable about it. And then one day just sort of decided that enough is enough that I'm not going to do this thing that I can't justify even to myself. Now, Julia, you're, are you vegetarian as well? I'm mostly vegetarian. I still eat fish and shellfish and stuff, um, all seafood, because I'm vegetarian for different reasons. I don't personally think it's unethical to eat other animals, but I do think the way we treat the animals that we then kill for meat is like not something any living creature should be subject to. So um, I don't eat like farm-raised animals. For me, it's sort of more obviously wrong to torture animals their entire lives before killing and eating them. But I also am not morally comfortable with just killing and eating, loving, thinking, feeling beings. Uh, So I've been really influenced by a lot of the Peter Singer stuff as a lot of the other vegetarians my age probably have been. Uh, A lot of my friends at Oxford who who were sort of more schooled in philosophy than me were really big fans of Peter Singer. And so honestly, I haven't even read Animal Liberation, which is his big famous book from the 1970s. But I feel like I've sort of imbibed it through my friends and been really impacted by it. So if you're in a situation where an animal is already dead, it's you still wouldn't need it because it was once a living, breathing being. Yeah, I don't know. I haven't really thought about that. But I think we're in a situation where animals are being killed for the purpose of eating them. So sure, I don't yeah. 
I think I used to justify it to myself as already dead, but then, you know, this industry exists because we eat the things once they're dead. And I mean, one person's demand doesn't matter, so I don't actually think that I'm making an impact by not eating meat, but okay. it's just kind of like my personal statement against the existence of this tradition. I think it's important to evaluate the choices we make every day from not a perspective of what's culturally acceptable, but what we can actually justify because history is sort of littered with things we thought were okay for a really long time. And then we look back on as being morally horrible. And so I don't claim to know the future or be have, you know, have some sort of great moral authority relative to other people. But I always try to ask this hypothetical question of, you know, in 23, 15, 300 years from now, what are people going to look back and say, oh, I can't believe people did that in 2015. And my hope is that maybe we will one day reach a point where people look back and can't believe the way we used to treat animals. Yeah, I think it is easy to just kind of go through life and go through the motions and not really evaluate every day why you are making the choices that you're making. So that's very admirable. You know, I was thinking about this uh, yesterday, actually, because Sally and I uh, and Esther were out and we were driving and uh, makes me makes me sad to talk about, but a little squirrel ran across the road and I saw it coming and I didn't swerve because I, I was hoping that I was, I was thinking if I tried to swerve, I'd actually hit it. So I was thinking like, I'll just do what I'm doing and the squirrel will hopefully avoid the car, but it didn't. And we drove, we drove over the squirrel and I looked in the rearview mirror and there was a little squirrel laying there and it made me really sad to think about like, did I just kill a little animal by accident? Yeah, it's a very strange thing. I think there's a book about this, uh, and I can't remember what it's called, but the way that we process different animals differently without really having any sort of serious intellectual justification for it in the sense that there are a lot of people who love their dogs and cats and other types of animals but are totally okay with eating like you know, pigs that were raised in a crate and never had the ability to turn around or whatever. And pigs are just as smart and emotionally feeling as dogs and cats. And so I feel like there's a lot of people who I would classify as cognitive dissonance meat eaters, which is like, they don't like thinking about the fact that they're eating something that was killed and before that frequently not treated very well, but they just sort of don't think about it. And if people listening to the podcast are at all interested in trying out vegetarianism it's been remarkably easy to switch over in terms of cooking and um, diet and that sort of thing so we never cook meat at home even though I occasionally meet, eat meat out I've all we cook exclusively vegetarian and have never run out of recipes and actually end up eating way more vegetables, like actual produce that's really, really good for you than if we had based our diet around meat sources. And you can go the wrong way and end up eating a lot of bread and cheese and things that aren't good for you, but vegetarianism can actually be a really great way to explore different recipes for soups and salads and, um, you know, various Lentils. lentils, dolls, pastas, like different types of cuisine, like Indian and Thai and various other things that are very vegetarian friendly because most of the world actually doesn't eat meat on a regular basis for economic reasons. There are great recipes out there for vegetarian foods. That's great. Yeah, that's that's really good um, advice. So before we wrap up, is there a specific specific blog or cookbook or something that you would recommend for our listeners? <laughs> my main cookbook is Ishan's mother. Oh, wait, <laughs> nice. <laughs> I wouldn't, I wouldn't go 
to that, but <laughs> we have a cookbook um, called the Moosewood Kitchen. Um, oh yeah, book. I've heard about that. I've heard it's really good. Yeah, yeah. One of our friends gave it to us for uh, our wedding, and it's been really fun to try out different things. So, yeah, we just made a delicious Asian coleslaw for a picnic we had over the weekend, and I don't like coleslaw typically, but they managed to make it good. So, yeah, there are lots of recipes like that. Julia, we so you gave us a little bit of a glimpse into your lives. Um, why don't you each tell us a little bit more about what you're doing, what it's like to be studying economics and medicine, and where you want to take that in the future. What kind of doctor do you want to be, and what um, what do you want to do with an economics degree? A different kind of doctor, a PhD doctor. Yeah. Right, true. Yeah, yeah sorry. <laughs> we joke, I'll be the real doctor. <laughs> I'll be the doctor in name. Um, so... Yeah, I'm in I just finished my first year of medical school, so I don't actually have to decide what type of doctor I want to be for another 2 years, which is at once comforting and very unnerving because there's a lot left to decide. Sure. It's kind of like going back to college and having to pick a major again. It's kind of I thought that by choosing medicine that was the main choice and beyond that it was going to be very simple but it actually there are many permutations within medicine it's a very flexible field so you can do lots of different things and at the moment I'm pretty open to everything except for surgical fields just because um, surgery experiences have never quite resonated with me in the same way that medical oriented experiences have but we shall see maybe that will change (laughs) but yeah, uh, beyond what type of doctor I want to be, I've always been interested in sort of public health and health policy, and I did um, epidemiology as my concentration in college, and then I worked for a couple of years after college doing what's called health services research in emergency medicine, which is about basically how we deliver health care and how that impacts patients' outcomes as well as um, finances and various other aspects of the whole system. And so that sort of got me interested in how the delivery of healthcare influences people's health as much as their genetics and their organs and their cells and various other things. So one of the things I'm doing this summer is I'm doing a sort of internship slash research experience at the hospital in what's called quality improvement, where I'm working with a professor that does a lot of inpatient quality and safety work. And specifically, the project I'm working with her on is reducing the number of vitals alarms that go off at the hospital. Uh, Pretty much any time you go into a hospital, everything left and right is beeping at you. Yeah, definitely. It's very (laughs) unnerving. Yeah. And it more annoying than anything else, but there have been some high-profile cases where there are so many beeps that most of them are not real or important, but occasionally there's one that's life or death and someone beeps because they're flatlining and they're having a heart attack or something. But nurses and other caregivers are so inured to the noises and to the notifications that 
they ignore them. And so people have died because of this thing called alarm fatigue, where it's sort of the cry-wolf effect. You get too many alarms going off at any given time so that when one is really accurate, you still ignore it and then the person is hurt. So I guess it's like with my alarm clock in the morning. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) You get too used to it and then you ignore it. Um, But yeah, so we're working on ways to reduce the number of beeps that are going on at a given time so that the ones that do go off are more meaningful. So that's the kind of yeah, so that's the kind of like quality and safety stuff in terms of how healthcare is actually delivered that I'm kind of interested in seeing maybe long-term whether I could make some bigger scale impacts beyond just treating individual patients. Yeah. Doing that's great. that kind of thing. Yeah. Go ahead, Ishan. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I uh, just finished the first year of my PhD program. The first year is totally uninteresting. You just take super hard math classes and don't get to start any of your own research yet. So I'm glad to hopefully have that behind me pending whether I pass my exams, which hopefully I did. Uh, so this is my first week. Uh, thanks. I appreciate (laughs) the confidence. I wish you got a vote. Uh, (laughs) me too. (laughs) So now the rest of my PhD program, I basically have four years to produce some new human knowledge about economics, I guess. Uh, there's two, two fields of interest that I have sort of at the intersection of the two. One is, um, energy, environment, climate stuff, and one is sort of macro growth productivity, so probably more at a firm level focus of how firms in developing countries can get more productive and thereby people in developing countries have more opportunities to be more productive. So I think a really interesting question in economics is why the same person earns something like 16 times more or whatever in the United States than some less wealthy country that they came from. Uh, And it's obviously a lot of different aspects of that question. So hopefully I can hone in and find one that I can contribute to understanding better. And I think the intersection of this question of economic growth and people around the world hopefully having higher and higher living standards and having fewer and fewer people living in extreme poverty uh, while also not, while mitigating the environmental damages and climate change and carbon emissions that come alongside it. And conversely, how to continue the process of growth and having people's life circumstances getting better and better, even when we're living in a world that's probably going to have a lot of challenges created by climate change. I think that's the question that a lot of people have been slower to ask in the literature, uh, not just in the academic literature, but also in the broader world. There's a lot of focus on how do we prevent climate change, but in a lot of ways, it seems pretty clear to me that our political system has just rejected the idea of preventing climate change. And so I think hopefully the next big thing in economics and other fields will be how do we hope try our best to continue to promote prosperity and happiness and well-led lives in a world that's going to be more difficult? Yeah, that's neat. It sounds like you've identified a good, um, a good topic that that not many people have dove into. Yeah, maybe you can carve out a niche for yourself there. Yeah, part of the reason probably that it's been less studied is that it's just difficult to study. Uh, there's we can obviously use past extreme weather events and one-off, you know, years of high temperature or 
drought in certain countries to try to learn about how to deal with these things better. But there's probably going to be challenges we face that we haven't had experience with in the past. And so it's probably a difficult thing to study how to deal with something that we haven't yet get dealt with when yeah. how how much can you go into kind of climate climatology without um getting uh skeptical glances from your dissertation committee uh what do you mean so i mean you're doing an econ phd but i mean how much can you really touch like climate science if you're doing an econ phd or do they oh. not mind that you're kind of blending them uh so i i don't really know enough science to have any science in my dissertation oh, okay. it would be it would be entirely like just econo- does, economic effects. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Gotcha. Like, how does the economy affect emissions, or how does the climate affect the economy? Things right. like that. Okay, cool. So, kind of different topic here. Actually, a very di- not kind of a very different topic. <laughs> but Julia, <laughs> uh, you told us that you're training for a triathlon. How did that come about? Um, so, my dad has been doing triathlons for the last oh gosh, at least ten years. Um, multiple times a year and I previously did a lot of just running and he convinced me that it would be healthy and fun to try doing multiple types of sports and cross train and do a triathlon with him so I did a very short what's called a sprint triathlon with him uh oh yeah I've heard of those years ago yeah yeah they're very they're very doable if anyone is interested in trying out the sport that's a good place to start it's a quarter mile swim 12 mile bike and I think a two or three mile run so it's not terribly long and it was a good introduction but then this year he convinced me to take the next step up so I'm doing the full Olympic length which is um, not anything like Ironman like I'm not that crazy but (laughs) it's still a mile swim, 25 mile bike and a 10 K run. So wow. it's a fair amount of work. So yeah. I've had to train a lot, especially on the swimming. I'm it's in Lake Michigan and I'm slightly const- concerned that, you know, I might drown. So <laughs> I've been working very hard to make sure that that does not happen. So I've been swimming a lot in Lake Michigan. Up. Have you been just, I've been doing it mainly in the pool. Cause it Lake Michigan is very, very cold at the beginning mm. of the summer and oh, warms yeah. up over time. So I'm hoping that me and a friend of mine who did um, synchronized swimming at Stanford and is a very strong swimmer is going to go out with me and we would try and do our first one in the next week or so, um, open water training. So Wow. How do you find that the time to train with med school? Uh, luckily, summer is a lot easier time-wise than it was during the school year. And so it's... One of the reasons we're doing it this summer is that it's probably the last opportunity for a while that I'll have to devote this much time to my training because after this, it's going to be a lot tougher schedule-wise. So the triathlon's August 30th, and that's sort of the end of my summer. So perfect perfect. timing. Yeah, that's perfect. Yeah, I've always been tempted by the sprint triathlon, but we've never had bikes but uh, that will change next week. So wow, maybe. Very exciting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've also been intrigued by the idea of a triathlon, but unlike Sally, I have no swimming background. <laughs> so that's the hard gotcha. part for me. Yeah. Like I, I think I could do the bike and the run without uh, too much difficulty, but uh, I went into the pool the other day and tried swimming. Sally was there <laughs> and uh, cause we took Esther to the pool and I was like, Oh, well, we're here. Like, let me try some laps. And so I think I did eight lengths like four, you know, four there and back. 
So it's like 200 meters and I was so tired. (laughs) Yeah, it takes some getting used to. I definitely, I started my swim training back in January or February or something. And yeah, I was like you at the first, the first time I did it, I swam 200 meters and I was like, Oh, I'm done. I'm so tired, but you can get, you can really work your way up if you just train at it, just like running. Yeah. It's just so different from what I'm used to because your breathing has to be so controlled. And I think I'm still getting a hang of breathing. So I'll like try to breathe and I'll just breathe in a ton of water instead. And then I'm like coughing up the water and it just throws off my breathing. And then I like don't have oxygen. (laughs) It's just a disaster. Yeah. That's the hardest part is you have to get the breathing down. But once you get the rhythm of breathing down, it actually in some ways makes it easier because you never quite get out of breath because you have it very controlled. It's, I don't know, it's very interesting, but it's definitely something to get used to. Yeah, I'll have to keep working at it. <laughs> yeah. And I am intrigued by the idea of watching people travel. <laughs> perfect. <laughs> well, that's perfect because you can just cheer Julia on. I'll bring a poster. That's my wife. Yeah. <laughs> perfect. Yep. <laughs> Maybe you can bring uh, Zoe and Rosie. Oh, yeah. (laughs) That would be a good good incentive to cross the finish line. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, before we wrap up with you guys, um, we wanted to ask you who you would invite to a fictional dinner party. Um, What three people, living or dead, that you would invite? You go first. You're better at this question. (laughs) (laughs) I think I attempted to answer it on the pre- podcast survey you did and and i loved your answer do you remember what your answer was (laughs) i i think so i i think so i sort of decided i was torn between two different approaches one of which was like invite people who i wanted to ask specific things of and two invite people who did bad things and i would want to get rid of (laughs) (laughs) and uh i think julia the assassin yeah (laughs) (laughs) um but um so i think i answered one of my answers answers was dorothy day i believe Mm -hmm. yeah Um, she was one of the um she was a catholic social worker uh she converted i think she was um she had a different life beforehand than she had a daughter and that sort of changed her outlook on life and she started doing a lot of work serving the poor from a very religious perspective, but she's had an enormous impact on the working poor in American cities as, and I don't know a ton about her, but I went to Catholic high school and she was one of the people we studied in our, um, justice class and things like that. And I really wanted to ask her about empathy and how to foster like, true empathy for others and how to how empathy like can fuel change and I I don't know she seems like one of the best examples of empathy providing impetus for real betterment of people's lives and um I was just curious about that so I'd love to chat with her about that and she passed away so be a rare opportunity (laughs) yeah and think the other one I wanted I did for the what I wanted to ask the reasons was I think I said the Buddha Mm -hmm. yeah and the Buddha was you know a real person and had a very unique um experience of enlightenment and unique perspective on sort of human existence and um 
the existence or non-existence of higher powers and the connection of people to that. And so I, I was just curious. I don't know a lot about the Buddha, but the perspective of Buddhism always interested me. So I thought I'd be, I'd ask him about enlightenment and about, I don't know, human existence and higher powers or lack thereof. So, yeah. And then I think I said Hitler. So, or no, I said Leopold II, the guy who basically got Belgium to essentially enslave the Congo. Right. Um, and so he's to, one of the bad guys you would want to get rid of. One of the bad of. guys who I would have <laughs> wanted to basically assassinate. So, yeah. So suddenly become this murder mystery dinner party. <laughs> yeah, basically. Dorothy who killed Day, King you know, Leopold? <laughs> yeah, Dorothy not, Day, not Dorothy Day. 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 <laughs> <laughs> I do not know how that would work out. But <laughs> yeah. You'd be like, Dorothy Day, she helped me to have empathy for towards yes. Leopold. Yeah, II. seriously. <laughs> enlighten him so that he can go back right. in time. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, Ishan, what about you? Uh, I took this question a little too seriously, and it resulted in a lot of paralysis and lack of decision-making. So my first two trains of thought were, well, I should invite someone who would know the answer to some great mystery of history. So then I tried to think of, like, great mysteries of history, and uh, it happens to rhyme. Uh and, you know, maybe I'd invite people from religious texts or something like that so that we could know the truth about something. But then I don't really know enough history to answer that question. And then my next thought was, well, sort of along the lines of Julia, like, how could I prevent something horrible from happening? So I was thinking, oh, like, maybe I should invite FDR and tell him that he should probably fight Hitler earlier and get the United States off the gold standard earlier or something like that, Uh make the Great Depression and World War II better, come up with some ideas like that. But then I couldn't really think of the best wrongs from history that would have been writable. And so I think ultimately I would probably give up on this intellectual quest that I would be <laughs> on about how best to use this dinner party to make the world a better place. And I would just invite Derek Rose, Jimmy Butler, and Doug McDermott from the Bulls because <laughs> <laughs> they're all – around my age, guys who live in Chicago, love basketball and are really good at it. And so I figure maybe if I have them over to dinner, we could all be friends and they would come over for dinner again. And I would get to go sit behind the bench at Bulls games because I was best friends with them. Perfect. I, I mean, that's actually realistic. Yeah. That's yeah. that. There's there's a greater chance of that happening than there is of the you guys options. having the Buddha and King Leopold over. So <laughs> believe it or not, or going back in time and fixing the Great Depression. Yeah. Well, you know what, Ishan? Maybe they listen to Vernacular Podcast, and so maybe they'll just hear this. And they'll come knocking yeah. on your door. Awesome. I did have a couple of the Chicago Sky women's players favorite a couple of my tweets and nice. so that was a big highlight of my summer so far. Awesome. Are you a, a WNBA fan? I'm a big WNBA fan. Cool. I'm a big WNBA supporter, evangelist, proponent. <laughs> Try to get people to watch women's basketball wherever I go. Nice. Yeah, I probably would, but I'm really not a basketball fan. I mean, I appreciate March Madness, I guess, more because you know the college rivalries and all that, but I just don't know enough about basketball to appreciate watching the sport. That's fair enough. There's a lot of diehard basketball fans missing some really great basketball because they don't watch the WNBA, though. It's cool. also very easy to get tickets to games if people want to go see them in person. Oh, that's yeah. cool. Actually, yep. makes me want to go to a basketball game. I think that would be fun. We should definitely go to a Sky game. When you Let's guys go. Finish. When's the season Perfect. over? Uh, like end of September. 
Let's go watch a Sky game. That would be fun. Cool. Well, this has been a fun conversation, guys. Thanks so much for talking to us. We had a great time talking to you about Greece and guinea pigs and vegetarianism and everything else. So thanks so much for being on the show. We had a lot of fun and hope you guys enjoyed it. Thanks, thanks for, for having, having us. us. <laughs> <laughs> Have a good one, guys. Talk to you soon. You too. Thanks, guys. All right, welcome back to Vernacular Podcast. It's time to check the inbox. All right, let's do it. Ah, and we have feedback. Awesome. So first, we have an email from Karen, and she listened to our episode with Ostrich and Aaron, and she says, I had a chance to listen to the latest episode with your friends growing hops in Virginia. Very interesting. As both an entrepreneur and a wine drinker, exclusively until last summer, I found their story and the information fascinating. I'm really enjoying microbrews, but didn't know why until now. And then she very kindly compliments us on our voices, (laughs) as Nathan did in a previous episode she says that my voice is melodic and sweet that's which is true nice that's very true and it's a perfect pairing with Zach. it sounds like a wine pairing so <laughs> we're or <a> beer pairing <laughs> now when karen says that she drank wine exclusively until last year <laughs> she doesn't mean that she didn't drink other beverages oh okay <laughs> she just means that she didn't try beer until oh. recently <laughs> Got it. That's so much more clear now. (laughs) In terms of her alcohol drinking, it was only wine. Right. Okay. Um, So she said, and she liked my questions as well. So if you haven't heard that episode with Astrid and Aaron, it is a really, really interesting one. And it was fun to to sit down with them and talk. This sounds like a Sally groupie. (laughs) Sally has a fan. I think so. Thanks, Karen. Um, We also have feedback from a couple other people, Carolyn and Muriel, and those both relate to our solicitation for gender dysphoria feedback because we had had a conversation about gender dysphoria with... um, Nathan and Sadie. Yes. And that was episode... 10, nine, nine, I think. And both, um, Carolyn and Muriel have feedback for us. And we, um, are going to air that actually in our little mini episode following this week's episode. Yeah. So we asked Carolyn and Muriel to have short conversations with us and, uh, longtime listeners will recognize Muriel from episode four. I believe we talked to Muriel. I think so. Yeah. Um, she's the PhD candidate, but anyway, we talked to Muriel and Carolyn had brief conversations with them about their perspectives on this. And so we'll be airing that in our mini episode next week. But remembering Dustin's feedback from, I think last week, we don't want to make this episode go on any longer, which is why we're saving that those recordings until next week. Right, exactly. <laughs> so that's what's up for next week. And we'll also talk to you about programming changes, which we'll talk to you a little bit about right now. So basically, up to now, all of the episodes in Vernacular have been Sally and I talking to... A, One or two other people. Yeah, a guest or two, all about their life, talking about a bunch of different topics, something from current events, something from lifestyle, and then kind of a general interview section about who they are. Well, in episode two, what we want to do is actually have... Season two, rather. Sorry, (laughs) season two. What we want to do is have multiple guests on each episode and talk about a variety of things, but then also have the flexibility to just have one guest on in one episode and talk to that guest at length for a very specific topic that's of interest to all of our listeners. So... Yeah, so if you want to be on our show and you feel like there's one topic that you really want to talk about, then let us know. You don't have to feel like you need to talk about the news and lifestyle topics and interview about your life. Right, exactly. Well, that about wraps it up for us here at Vernacular for this week. Our closing music is from Jordan Short and his band. For more on Jordan and his wife, go to episode five of our podcast, listen to them talk about what they're up to these days. 
But this is a great song. We've loved using it as our outro and we'll continue to do so with Jordan's permission, of course. <laughs> so enjoy this music for Vernacular Podcast. I'm Zach. And I'm Sally. Have a great week. I'm by your side